Well, over the last few weeks, as we've journeyed on the Magical Mystery Tour, we've been asking some of the big questions of belief. You know, and sometimes it's easy to believe in God when you're young. If somebody tells you it's true, you believe them. You know, and it's one of those things that thinking that there's a, a big God up there who's watching over things and taking care of us can be kind of a comforting thought. But as we get a little older, you know, we start to see things in the world around us that aren't so comforting. We see people suffering. We see natural disasters. Loved ones get sick. And we start to wonder how those things fit together with who God is. And it becomes a little more difficult to believe. And so as we've been going through this series, we're trying to kind of ask those tough questions that have been really been asked for centuries, not just decades, and how different people, different ideologies, different belief systems have tried to answer those questions. So let's start in the Far East today with Buddhism. Buddhism is, const- is commonly practiced here. And to try to answer the question of suffering, where does it come from? Why is it here? In general, Buddhism says that suffering is caused by your desire for worldly things. And so the solution is, if you stop wanting things, you'll stop suffering. It, it kind of reminds me of the plot of the movie Groundhog Day. Uh, who hasn't seen that movie, right? <laughs> but what kind of happens in the movie is... Bill Murray gets stuck in this same cycle over and over, and all he wants is to get out and to get out of Punxsutawney, and until he kind of gives that idea up and decides that he's okay where where he is, that's when he finally stops suffering. Well, it makes for a cool movie plot, but it doesn't really help us answer our question. So let's motor our bus over to India, where Hinduism tries to answer this question by telling us that suffering is because of the consequences of our past actions. So kind of like Santa Claus puts coal in your stocking if you've done something wrong. And, and so you should embrace that. You should understand that. It's, it's that idea of karma that we hear all the time. What goes around comes around. If something bad happened to you, you probably deserved it. If something good happens to me, well, I worked pretty hard for it. It seems to make sense until your mom is in the hospital and she's suffering with a disease and you don't know where it came from or you see a tornado level a school full of children and then it becomes a little more difficult to reconcile that idea oh so let's try the middle east what does islam have to say about this well islam says that the problem of evil and the idea of suffering are a natural part of the world that we live in that there are invisible forces that work all around us basically to inflict pain on us when we do something wrong. It tells us that we should embrace that idea because while wrongdoing and suffering are bad, they teach us good things like humility, repentance, and strength. The Muslim view sounds a little bit like that personal trainer who's always shouting at you. No pain, no gain! Right? So it it might hurt, but you should like it. Because it's going to teach you something. Now, a lot of people think that the Christian view is similar to that. And there are some similarities. The reality that evil is a part of the world that we live in. That suffering is real. And and we don't try to pretend that it's not. The world is a broken place. But Christianity also teaches that there is hope. That God loves you. And God does not want you to suffer. And in fact, that's why God sent Jesus 
so that Jesus could heal us from our suffering, heal us from our wrongdoing, give us a greater hope, and give us life. And so it carries this idea that God has promised that one day he will stop evil and he will stop suffering. In just a few minutes, we have a guest speaker, Gary Stanley, who's going to join us today to help us kind of answer that question. And Gary is a world-renowned author, best-selling author and storyteller. He's written curriculum that are being used across the globe to teach children ethics. And he's going to help us address that question because we believe that one day God will stop the rain. Good morning. How many of you self-identify as a baby boomer? You were born between 46 and 64. How many of you have no idea what a baby boomer is? Okay. Yeah, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. I've been following this on the website. You've covered three or two big questions. First question was God. Who is God? What is God? Is there a God? And if there is a God, what is he like? And then last week, Chad took you into eternity. What is eternity like? Is it all good, all bad, nothing? And in the process of doing that, you've been looking at the struggle. I'm a baby boomer. I'm a product of that time. And, of course, that was the age when the baby boomers were coming of age and asking all the big questions about injustice, about seeking enlightenment and peace. And you think about it, though, the 60s had more than their share of evil. The civil rights movement was going on, the Vietnam War, the emerging culture of sex and drugs and radicals, and there was a monumental crisis in leadership. Does this sound anything like today? Yeah, we've been struggling with the same things. Historians would say that this period of questions began with the assassination of President Kennedy. That was November 22, 1963. Those of us that are older baby boomers remember where we were that day when we heard the news. What you might not recall, though, is that two other renowned men died that same day. These two men were both Famous authors, they were English, they were philosophers, and both of them triggered a spiritual revolution that followed them. But they took two very different routes. One of them was Aldous Huxley, the author of Brave New World. And the solution that he looked for in his spiritual longing longing, took him into a psychedelic, mystical solution. The other was the man C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis found his answers in historic Christianity. And while C.S. Lewis addresses the problem of evil and suffering in many of his writings, it's the problem of pain where we find the majority of us thinking on the subject. I read this particular book while convalescing from knee surgery about 37 years ago. And let me tell you, when you're in major pain and suffering, this is a terrible book to read. That's absolutely no help whatsoever. In fact, at the very beginning of the book, he says very clearly, he says, the only purpose of this book is to solve the intellectual problem raised by suffering. He says, for the far greater task of teaching fortitude and patience, 
I was never fool enough to suppose myself qualified. And I can tell you, while I was convalescing from knee surgery, the book was useless. On top of that, there's a quote at the very beginning of the book. And here, here it is. And it says, The Son of God suffered unto the death, not that men might not suffer, but that their suffering might be like his. And I thought, thank you so much for putting that quote there. I have no idea what it means. And I thought, maybe when the hurting has gone away, it'll make sense. Well, let's take a look at how C.S. Lewis describes this question, because this, for many people, is the question. This conundrum of how can a loving God allow evil and suffering. Here's the way he puts it. He said, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But his creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. Now, this isn't a new question. When Chad began this series, he introduced this question. In fact, you've heard multiple answers to this very question over the last couple of weeks. And that is because the great questions of life overlap. You can't talk about God. You can't talk about eternity without also talking about evil and suffering. And so, in a sense, we've already answered this question, at least at 40,000 feet. But we're going to dip the plane a little lower today and take a look at some of these other questions. Drew this morning talked about the way the Eastern mystics look at this. They say it's an illusion. You think you're suffering, but if you just had enough enlightenment, you would realize that you're asking the wrong question. Lewis takes this and pushes it a little further when he looks at the, the concept of monism. It's where it says that God is above evil and suffering. And these are, he produces these effects that we call evil and suffering. But if we had enough enlightenment, we would quit divining arbitrarily life into these two different categories. And then Lewis pushes you a little further and he asks an important question. He says, does the fact that God commands things make them right? Or are they right because they're just right and that God commands things that are right? It's a big deal here. Because if things are only right because God said they're right, then the idea of right and wrong isn't something we can step back and look at. It would be like whether you argue that it's true because it's in the Bible or it's in the Bible because it's true. Those are two wildly different statements. And I would argue that in Christianity, we get the second option. It's, it's in the Bible because it's true. And if that's the way we approach it, then it means you can ask questions. Your doubters are welcome. Do you know how rare that is in any worldview or faith? I know of no other faith physician that invites you to ask your questions. I know no other place where the, where the author of this faith stretches himself out on the table of history and says, come take a look for yourself. Decide if it's true or not. If you're a lawyer, you might look at it this way. Uh, in, in the law, there are two Latin phrases. One is malum in se and the other is malum prohibitum. 
Malum in se means something is evil in and of itself. Malum prohibitum just simply says, well, no, it's, it's unlawful only by statute. We, we stop on red, go on green. There's nothing ethical about that. We could have stopped on green and gone on red, but we, we make that argument that's malum prohibitum. You see the difference between the two? I've just turned it around. But what Lewis is going to argue is that, no, God commands good things. And they're not good because God commands them. They are good because God himself is good. Look at, look at the way he puts, he, he says that up there earlier. He says that God commands things and it's determined by his wisdom, which is always embraces the good. Losing your breath? Afraid to fall down a rabbit hole? This question of good and evil does that all over the place. It's nothing but rabbit holes. And it's kind of nice that C.S. Lewis takes a step back and gives us some of the broad pictures of this. I want you to look at the people around you. And I want you to think this thought. If you have a pulse, you have problems. It is the human condition. And this is the question on which so many people dismiss God. They go, there's evil and suffering. The God you're talking about obviously can't exist. And if the argument were left at that level, they would be correct. But the problem is the argument isn't stated very well and it makes a bunch of assumptions. On top of that, it's a very old argument. It's one of those arguments that goes way back to the beginning of time. The oldest book in our Bible is the book of Job. You might remember Job. He's suffering. He has no idea why. It's not till the end of the book that the, the mystery is peeled back and Job begins to understand that he is in a bigger story and that his suffering actually makes sense. If you were to take the prophet Jeremiah, I like the way he puts this question. He's writing, oh, during a very tumultuous time in the history of Israel. The, the nation of Assyria has been hauling the people off and And he's got questions, and here's the way he writes his question. He says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Okay, look, here's the rub. How come the wicked keep prospering? Why are those who deal in treachery at ease? It's not making sense. If you're a loving, all-powerful God and we are your people, this is not how this should play out. You're not meeting our expectations. I once I wrote a book. It was um, it's called the Annoying Attributes of God. It was an easy book to write. <laughs> He's patient and thinks you should be. He's always right. Uh, it, it, it's, it's incredible of all the things about God. This has got to be the most annoying thing. He doesn't do what you expect. And unfortunately, as Americans, the problem is compounded. There are two American myths that make this even worse. The first myth is simply this. If I don't do anything wrong, nothing bad will happen. Did you know that's a uniquely American myth? The rest of the world does not suffer under this. Bad things happen all the time. You can't control things. The illusion of control is a Western idea. And if things go bad, then I need to look to someone to blame. And that takes you into the second myth. Because here's the second myth. 
If anything good happens, it was just luck or circumstance or nature. But if anything bad happens, that was God's fault. You see how it compounds the problem of evil and suffering? Yeah. Well, let's take a look at how C.S. Lewis unpacks this idea of evil and suffering. Because the Bible takes a very different approach to answering this question. It puts it in a historic narrative where human beings are described as image bearers gifted with free will. Here's what Lewis says. He says, Christianity asserts that God is good and that he made all things good for the sake of their goodness. That one of the good things he made, he makes, namely free will of rational creatures, is by its very nature includes the possibility of evil. So God being good makes free will and free will opens the door to evil. I'd like you to listen to how Lewis frames this in one of his famous radio talks about the problem of good and evil. Just listen. God created things which had free will. That means creatures which can go either wrong or right. Some people think they can imagine a creature which was free but had no possibility of going wrong. I cannot. If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that work like machines, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for that, they must be free. Of course, God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it worth the risk. He thought it was worth the risk. The Bible describes it as a threefold play. First, the exercise of our free will has consequences. God created a perfect world, but mankind with free will rebels against God, and as a result of our free will, we now live in a fallen world where there's evil and suffering. And I'd like you to look at the very last verse. It's Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. In the New King James, it says something different than most of the modern translations. It says, Cursed is the ground for your sake. I remember one of the annoying things about God. I thought, why in the world did you curse the world after humans fell? The world didn't do anything. Why, why make mosquitoes? Why make all this other stuff? But the problem is, if human beings were the only fallen thing in a perfect world, no matter what they did, no matter where they went, all they would do is bring things down. There would be no hope for them to do anything better. One of my, one of my dear friends... Her name is Elaine Pakala, and her childhood was one of unspeakable horror. She was trapped in satanic ritual abuse and incest, and nearly every bone in her body was broken. And she writes about her ordeal from a child's point of view, using a child's vocabulary. And Elaine said as a little girl, she had a mental box 
where she put her questions. She would hear her father bringing men down the hall to abuse her. And she would, she would pray to God, please, don't let them hurt me. And they hurt her a lot. And she put those questions in a little box. Years later, her life was redeemed. She is one of the most joyful people I know. She, she wrote a dissertation, a, a doctoral dissertation on, on uh, neuropsychology and, and has an amazing life. But one day she was driving down the road and she sensed that God said, would you like me to answer some of the questions in your mental box? She pulled her car off to the side of the road, and here's basically what she heard God say to her heart. He said, free will is more important than you could ever know. Without free will, there's no possibility of real love. Without free will, there can be no true relationship. I know you have suffered far more than most. Because of the choices of free will for good or ill. And then he said something to her heart. He said, if you want to know how much I am willing to pay for my children to have free will, look at the cross. It is the most expensive gift I give my children. God is deadly serious about free will. And it is more important that you have free will than that he deal with the surface expectations of evil and suffering. That's the first great mystery. The second mystery is this. The motivation behind God's willingness to pay such a high price is at the heart of this question about evil and suffering. Lewis puts it this way on page 40. He says, The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble as long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love. You know, the word love gets, gets thrown around a lot of different ways. And we think, oh, if you love someone, you don't want them to ever be disappointed, ever be hurt, or anything else. But no, we live in a bigger story than that. God looks at us with a lover's eye to see who we could become. That we could become these magnificent creatures to live in eternity in relationship with Him. And that's why He gets to this quote. He says, as a result, He whispers in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's His megaphone to rouse a deaf world because the troubles in this life are not just corrected, but opportunistic. I, I love the way one of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, puts it. He says, a world without problems, difficulties, perils, and hardships would be morally static. In other words, without want and need, there'd be no generosity. Without evil, there would be no opportunity for virtue to come forth. And we live in desperate times. But all the best stories in the Bible take place in desperate times. That's the age of heroes. It's when there is a darkness on the, on the front. 
And this is why the New Testament celebrates difficulties. In the New Testament, James, the little half-brother of Jesus, he's a pastor in Jerusalem, and he begins his, his letter this way, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and let patience have its perfect work, that you might be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11 is called the Great Hall of Faith. This is where, where they're celebrating the heroes of this long narrative. And it begins by talking about those who, by faith, subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, and became valiant in battle. Yay, all right. And then it says, oh, and others were tortured not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And still others had trial of mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, tempted, were tempted and slain with a sword, destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world is not worthy. See, apparently, within the sufferings of life comes great reward in this life and the next, which takes Lewis to his third mystery about pain and suffering. We're still in the middle of the story. He says, how could I talk about pain and suffering and not talk about heaven? The topic from last week. And he, he begins with a quote from St. Paul, the apostle, who said, I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. In other words, God's going to do something about this suffering. He's going to explain it to us. He's going to, to take it and turn it into something amazing. Here's the short answer to the problem of pain and suffering. How do we know that God is loving? Well, greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for a friend. Paul goes on and writes, he says, For I deliver this to you of first importance. First of all, that Christ died for our sins. That's how we know God loves us. He sent his son to die for us. How do we know God's all-powerful? Well, he raised him from the dead. That's the short answer. Feeling better? Probably not. The knee still hurt. It was still being reconstructed. The grief over the child that died still dead. The long-suffering that you endure right now, you're still enduring it. And that's because wrestling with the intellectual side of the problem of evil and suffering is important. It's just never enough. Because what do you need when you suffer? You know, if you go back to the very beginning of Lewis's book, I, I just read the first part of that, that quote when he said, the only purpose of this book is to solve the intellectual problem raised by suffering. But after he said, I've never supposed myself qualified to say anything about this except my conviction that when pain is to be born, a little courage helps more than much knowledge. A little human sympathy more than courage. And the least tincture of God's love, 
more than all. So as Lewis, even before he begins an intellectual journey down the rabbit hole, offers us three things. Courage, human sympathy, and the love of God. You know, I, I, I endured the reconstruction of my knee back in 1980 because I couldn't walk. An athletic accident had destroyed one knee, and after a few years, I, you know, without crutches, I couldn't walk. And the first three doctors said, we have a cure. We'll just fuse your leg straight. And I thought, no, thank you. I do not want the lifetime role of Chester to... Uh, Matt Dillon's character, I'll just go ahead and use crutches until something better comes along. And so finally, they rebuilt my knee. It's the most horrific pain I've ever gone through physically. But I went back to this quote. The Son of God suffered unto the death, not that men might not suffer, but that their suffering might be like His. And I thought, what does that really mean? And I finally understood. It was redemptive. And I thought, oh, see, my bigger prayer was that I could walk. And the pain was knitting the bone and the sinew and the joints and the nerves back together so that I could walk. I wanted the pain to stop, but the pain was really the answer to a much bigger question. And then I remembered something. I, it was either Howard Hendricks or a Buddhist monk. I can never remember who this said it, but. Said so sometimes the absence of pain is leprosy. Can't feel anything at all. That confusing quote by George MacDonald. It didn't stop any of the pain, but the pain took on a new meaning. And I, I gained courage to go ahead and face the pain for the greater good. I, I suspect, only suspect, the childbirth must be like this. Horrific pain, but you get new life. If, if there wasn't something bigger, all of us would be only children. No one would ever do this twice. But the problem still doesn't go away, does it? You see, ultimately the problem of evil and suffering is a narrative one. How we face our pain depends on the story we live in. There's a descriptor that has entered our vocabulary. It's called life-defining illness. Heard of that? Or it's a life-defining loss. Just fill in the blank. Sometimes our pain is so overwhelming that we can't see anything else or anyone else. And at that point, someone needs to come alongside human sympathy to wake us from those things. I've been an academic most of my life. And there was a, a moment in time when an opportunity came up and I thought, yeah, I think this is what God wants me to do. Sold everything, left all my friends, all of our relationships, moved to a brand new place and watched for a year the whole thing fall apart. And everything I had accrued to my, my favor all went south. It was the worst year of my life. 
My reputation is destroyed. I even feared for my physical life at some point. And finally, I reached this place where I was just in an emotional fetal position. I thought, I don't know what to do. I have never faced anything this horrific in my life. I have an enemy. And it also saw the stuff it stirred up in me. And my poor wife is, is thinking, what happened to my husband? And she, she tried everything she could think of to reach me, and nothing seemed to work. But my wife is a musician. She's a classical violinist. And she remembered that my, my oldest friend had sent me a, a cassette tape of some music. And she thought, who knows, maybe Mike, Mike knows something about my husband that will speak to his, his heart. So she put this music on. I'm, not, I'm just kind of non-communicative. And the fourth song on that tape said, You say you see no hope. You say you see no reason to dream the world will ever change from saying love is foolish to believe. There will always be some crazy with an army or a knife to wake you from your daydream and put the fear back in your life. Look, if someone wrote a play just to glorify what's stronger than hate, would he not arrange the stage to look as if the hero came too late? He's almost in defeat. It's looking like the evil side will win. But from the edge of every seat, from the moment that the whole thing began, it was love that mixed the mortar. It was love that stacked these stones. It was love that set the stage here. It looks like we're alone in a scene set in shadows like a night that's here to stay. Though there's evil cast around us, it is love that wrote the play. And in the darkness, love will show the way. And in that dark night of the soul, the music from David Wilcox lifted my heart above the current horizon to the far horizon. And I realized that this moment did not define my life. This pain, this evil, this suffering was only a part of the much bigger story. And that was the bottom of that moment as I came back out. There are a lot of things in life that try to define you. That is the great thing about the Christian faith. We can be defined by a God who loves us, who died for us. Because he knows how to suffer too. He knows what it's like to want to hold a child that's not there. He knows what it's like to watch his son die. And you can either be angry at him, deny he exists, or you can accept the comfort of his presence and being held. You see, the great thing 
about this faith is that it doesn't offer just intellectual answers, though they're important. It offers a person. Well, I don't know your suffering. I don't know the pain you're in right now. I just know the great comforter of life. And I make no promises that your pain will end. But I can offer you the courage that it can be redemptive. I can offer you the human sympathy of those in your midst. And a loving Father who would rather die than live in eternity without the possibility of you being there. Not so bad, huh? Oh, great lover of our soul, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. With the suffering, with the scars and memories of past hurts, I pray you would lift our hearts above the present horizon to see the bigger story. That the day comes when you will wipe away every tear, when you will right every injustice, when you will draw us home. If only we will go. Yeah. I pray you would awaken us to hope and to a much bigger story. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, Gary. Can we just give uh, Gary a thanks for being here with us today? I just want to thank you for sharing from your heart. Uh, it touches my heart. I know there's definitely things that when, when I hear stuff like that, I'm like, I want that to be true. <laughs> and I appreciate uh, that somebody who is a best-selling author and world-renowned teacher asks the same questions that I do. <laughs> so if that raises more questions for you, that's a good thing. Um, and so you know, Gary's going to be hanging around a little bit afterwards if you want to come and talk to Gary. And as always, uh, the third door on the left is the hearth room, and we would just love to put a name with the face or talk to you some more or pray with you. And so, Gary, we are thankful that you are here today. We are thankful all that you came here today and hope you all are able to come back next week. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. Thank you. <laughs>